First Peter chapter one, verse 22 through 25, chapter two, verse one through three. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincerely, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by, by, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. Back in 2008, there was a documentary series on the History Channel called Life After People. And you can still find it on uh, YouTube if you want to check it out. Uh, it's a, a series in which scientists, engineers, and other experts uh, speculated on what might become of the Earth if the Earth had suddenly become absent of human beings. If suddenly every human being had disappeared, what would happen to the Earth? And they used actual footage of places all throughout New York City and all throughout the world, and they interspersed it with realistic uh, CGI, computer-generated uh, images, of the cities and places in the world falling apart. And they would start with day one after people, and then day 10, year one, year 100, and then finally they would go on to year 10,000 after people exist. And it turned out to be one of the most watched programs ever on the History Channel. And here's the uh, opening credits. Uh, this is what the, the person would say, the, the monologue over the opening credits. What would happen if every human on Earth disappeared? This isn't the story of how we vanish. It's a story of what happens to the world we leave behind. Welcome to Earth, population zero. And then it goes on to like go through each of the places of the world, all the, the palaces and all the structures of the world and what they look like at all these time points. And it's really haunting and compelling. You would see pictures of the Chrysler Building Rockefeller Center, the Brooklyn Bridge, and all these iconic places, but without any people whatsoever. And then you would see what happens to these places over time. And so by year 10,000, it's as almost as if people had never, ever existed. And I found these haunting images of a crumbling New York City to really capture my imagination, because it helps to show us one of the fundamental truths about the world which is that all things eventually fall apart. All things inevitably move in the direction of disintegration, disorder, and decay. It's an idea that is often associated with the word entropy, the Greek word that means transformation. And the science of physics shows us to be, this to be true, that there's nothing that truly lasts forever. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when you walk around New York City, there is scaffolding outside all the buildings. It's because it's only a matter of time before the bricks fall off the building one by one. It's only a matter of time. It's unless they are being constantly maintained and repaired, um, they don't last forever. 
But in our passage today, Peter, the author of this letter, makes an extraordinary claim that in contrast to the temporary and fleeting nature of all things, God gives his people imperishable life through his living and abiding word. And that's one of the main ideas that's all throughout Peter's, Peter's letter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, which is to show the incomparable greatness, the infinitely greater value of imperishable and lasting things versus anything else that is perishable and will fade away. And I was reminded of this uh, uh, the last week during uh, Tim's sermon on Matthew 13. Uh, and one of the, the pa- uh, points of that passage, we see a merchant who finds just one single pearl of great worth. Just one single pearl of great worth, and yet sells everything he has to buy it. I'm also reminded of, of Jim Elliott's great quote that's related to this, that's profoundly inspiring to me. And in his, in his journal, he writes, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, we're talking about trading that which is here today and gone tomorrow to gain that which lasts forever. And what a great trade is that? Because anything that, is, that will decay, that will disappear, that will fade away, ultimately has limited value. And I was thinking about this this week, just kind of playing uh, in my own mind whether I believe this to be true. And I thought, you know, what if I, what if I had played the lottery uh, this week? And what if I'd won, you know, what was it, one point something billion? I, I don't know exactly what it was. I didn't win it. Um, would my life change? And, 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 and the answer is probably yes, my life would change. But the question I had for myself to, to test if I really believe this was, is, you know, the power of God at work in my life a greater source of change than, than winning that lottery? And that was a profoundly difficult question for me because I can imagine, you know, to have uh, one point whatever billion dollars uh, would, be, would, would be very uh, transforming to my life. But then to see that, that even that has such limited value because it's fleeting and will pass away versus what Peter is talking about here, that which is imperishable. And here in this passage, Peter writes about the new life that God gives to Jesus Christ. And we see this in verse 23 of our passage, where he contrasts the, the impermanence um, the, the impermanence of the mere mortal life with the permanence and the quality of life that is given by God, that is new life. The mere mortal life is here today and gone tomorrow. James uh, uh, writes about this in his letter. He says, what are you but a mist, but a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow? And Peter is saying, in contrast to this, is the imperishable word of God that gives new life. And specifically, Peter is using this image of a farmer who sows a seed that produces life. But this is no ordinary seed. It's the living and abiding word of God, which produces life eternal, life that lasts forever. And Peter makes it clear in this passage that he's referring specifically to the gospel, which we see in verse 25, the good news that was preached to you. He's referring to the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for those who trust and receive this message, they receive this new life. But unlike the seed that is planted by the farmer, this produces eternal life. And herein lies the extraordinary claim of the gospel. Whereas everything else in this world, 
will fade, will pass away, is subject to entropy, the enduring truth of the gospel will remain, and through it, it will produce life everlasting. And this is the very foundation of the Christian hope. And Peter writes this not as an intellectual exercise, but to be a great encouragement to his readers who in their present circumstances are enduring tremendous hardship and trials because of their faith in Jesus. And so Peter, in essence, he's saying, what you're going through, this too shall pass. No matter how difficult, no matter how challenging their circumstances may be in the present moment, your new life in Jesus Christ will certainly endure and give way to God's glorious future. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he writes this. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so even for our, many of us today who are going through our own hardships, who are enduring our own sufferings, who live with great disappointment in this life, Peter's message is the same. This too shall pass and give way to God's glorious future. And let me be clear, suffering and disappointment in this life is not trivial. It's not trivial. It's undoubtedly real. But we're reminded that these things do not have the final word in our lives. It's not the end of the story. And, and most importantly, the, the point that Peter is making is it does not compare to the things that God has in store for those who put their hope and trust in him. And so it's also important to understand that, that this hope that we're talking about, it's not merely a future hope, but it's something that, that Christians can experience even here and now as their hearts and their lives are being changed and transformed in the present. Peter alludes to this in the passage that we can experience the goodness of God in a way that profoundly changes and transforms our life and that produces a sincere and genuine love from a pure heart because it's being made pure, it's being set apart by God. And, and, and then we see this call, this imperative to love one another earnestly from a pure heart in verse 22. Whenever we read the Bible, we need to pay close attention to how the imperatives, the commands in the New Testament are always based on the, the indicatives, the statements of fact that come before it. This simply means that every command that we see in the New Testament, there is some underlying, some preceding statement of fact, which is the indicative. And so the indicative, the statement of fact here in this passage is, is in some previous verses that we didn't read, but it's in verses uh, 3 to 12. That's the, that's the indicative statement. Uh, and then the imperatives start with a therefore in 1 Peter 1, 13, and leading into the passage that we're talking about this morning. So there's an assumption that we're only reading a part of this letter, but there's an assumption that, that, that the earlier statement of fact is what this, is, this imperative is based on. And that's the key, that God has caused those who believe in Christ to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. And because of this new life in Christ, 
Christians are to be distinct and different as they carry out God's purposes and God's mission in the world. And that's at the very center, and at the very center of this distinctiveness is love. A love that is distinct and different because it's divine love, a love that comes from God and that is the power at work in his people. And you see this starting in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls, which refers to, to the holiness or the distinctiveness, by your obedience to the truth, which is faith in Jesus Christ, for sincere brotherly love, and here's the imperative, love one another earnestly, and then it tells you how, from a pure heart, since you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And that's it, that's the summary of this whole passage, and in many ways, the letter of First Peter. The command, love one another earnestly, comes from the indicative, you have been born again. You've been given this new life in Christ, and because of this, you're able to love in an entirely new way, to love earnestly from a pure heart. And so what does this actually mean, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart? First of, first of all, Peter says that it's a sincere brotherly love. And the word he, use, he uses uh, in Greek literally translates to unhypocritical. It's often translated genuine or sincere, earnest or authentic. And so what does love look like that's unhypocritical, love without hypocrisy? It's 100% authentic, it's pure and simple. Now imagine if you had been one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12, and after spending three years with him, day and night, there was not one single thing that you could remotely accuse, of, accuse him of in terms of fault or wrongdoing. That's earnest love, right? That's because he's in, it's, his love is entirely genuine. There's not even an iota of pretending, of acting, of merely outward appearances of love. It's unhypocritical love because it's completely sincere. It's authentic. It's genuine. And it means to love one. So what it means to love one another earnestly is to do what Jesus has done, is simply to, to be in his very nature, to love. It's who he is. And the love that we see in the Gospels is always one of action. It's a love that acts on the behalf of others, even at great cost to oneself. Like on the evening before Jesus' death, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he gets up from the dinner table, and he lays aside his outer garments, and he takes a towel, and he ties it around his waist. And then he kneels down, and he takes a basin of water, and he fills it. Then he kneels down, and then one by one, he washes the feet of the disciples to show them what he came to do for them, to wash them, to make them clean and holy. Jesus lays aside his, his privilege, his position, his power, his status, the son of God, the one who deserved all honor and respect and devotion. He's the one who's kneeling down before his disciples, even the ones who would deny him and betray him, and he washes their dirty feet. This is love. This is what love looks like. To love in this way means to meet someone at their point of greatest need, and that's what Jesus does. That's what love looks like. And now this is sincere and earnest love. It involves your willingness to get down on your knees, to get your hands dirty, literally, 
and to put others first, as Jesus did for his disciples. And in this kind of love, this pure, earnest love, there's no cost-benefit analysis. There's no keeping track, there's no keeping score, there's no quid pro quo, because Jesus' Jesus' love doesn't depend on how lovable a person is. In fact, you might even call it contra-conditional love. It's love that's in spite of how genuinely unloving unlovable and undeserving that I am of that love. So it's contra-conditional love. It's not based on condition of earning it. And so God willingly commits himself to his people and loves them with a steadfast and unchanging love. He willingly commits himself to this love. And so when you ask the question, why does God love me? What is the answer to that? I think the answer is, the answer we see is truly astounding when we really think about it. Because what is the answer to that question? God loves me because he loves me because he loves me. Full stop. There's there's no other reason. There's nothing else that compels God's love. It's completely the work of grace from beginning to end, from top to bottom. It's not because of anything that you or I have done. And it's not because of anything that you or I have not done. God loves you because he loves you, because he loves you. And when that truth, when that understanding begins to really sink deep within our hearts, to the very depths of our hearts, it changes us. It creates in us this new life that enables us to love as Jesus has loved us. And uh, Peter, as a good writer, makes clear what this love looked like in action. In chapter 2, verses 1, he gives a short list of the attitudes and behaviors that actually contradict this authentic love. So he's showing this uh, contrast, authentic love, and these are a short list of five things that are in contradiction to authentic love. And so he writes that we are to, to get rid of or to put off these things. And, and the word put off here is where it's often used for, for taking off clothing. Like, I like to take off my jacket right now, for example. Um, that, that would be the same word, uh, to put away. Uh, to put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Why? Because these things are the very opposite of love. Things like bitterness or dishonesty or pretending, jealousy, and speaking badly of others. These are the very opposite of love, as if to make clear that love is the opposite of all these things. Because the gospel-produced love is authentic, genuine, earnest, and sincere. It's a love that genuinely seeks the good of others. And so it's humble. It's selfless and self-giving. And when we think about how our culture views Christianity today, this emphasis on authentic love is, in my mind, more important than ever. As the gap is widening between the Christian faith and our culture, we need to be faithfully present through loving one another, and through loving our neighbors for Christ's sake. Is there anything more beautiful, more desirable, more compelling in this world than authentic, pure-hearted love? I don't think that there is. I don't think that there's a more powerful way to bear witness to the reality of Christ than to love others as Jesus has loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one another. Those are Jesus' own words. And even the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus, who was far from being religious, 
says the same thing. He says that love is the very best response that we can have in this world. He wrote in his journal uh, that if he ever had to write a book on morality, he would have 199 blank pages. 199 blank pages. This is Albert Camus, so he's trying to make a point. And on the last page, he would write this. I recognize only one duty, and that is to love. Right? As if to make the point that all morality, all of life, it comes down to love. And he famously wrote, absurdity may be king, but love saves us from it. And this is the, the greatest, one of the greatest philosophers who's not given to emotion or to sentimental thinking, but this is a logical, rational conclusion of one of the greatest thinkers of our time to say that love is the only thing that can make sense of this seemingly absurd world. It's the only thing that can make this life worth living. That's how powerful that love speaks to the world. Nothing is more convincing, nothing is more powerful, and nothing is more healing to the world than this kind of love. There's a clinical psychologist whose name is uh, Diane Langberg, and she specializes in trauma, and she recently wrote this about our, our cultural moment. She writes, given the number of suffering and traumatized people, the trauma of this world is one of the primary mission fields of the 21st century. It is one of the supreme opportunities before the church today. And then she asked, will we enter the trauma of shattered humanity in the name of Jesus? Because she says that's the opportunity is to extend the love of Christ that brings healing to a world that so desperately need, needs it. The trauma of the shattered humanity in the name of Jesus. How do we do this? Because all this sounds like uh, very idealistic. And in this passage, it talks about doing this, not relying on our own strength, or our own will, or our own determination, or our own effort. But we do this um, when we look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And Peter is not telling his readers that they are spiritual infants, because that's often uh, a misinterpretation of this, of this verse. Instead, he's telling their readers that they should crave the word of God, the living and abiding word of God, as infants crave their mother's milk. Because the word of God is to be to their new spiritual lives what milk is to a newborn baby. It's the very sustenance of life. And so the metaphor instructs his readers to crave the word of God, even as newborn babies crave milk, to crave it instinctively, eagerly, incessantly, so that it provides the, the nourishment for their new life in Christ. So they will grow up into the salvation, into the work of God, into that new life, into being more, into being made more and more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. In one of his essays, uh, Jonathan Edward writes about the difference between knowing about God and knowing God firsthand. And there's a huge difference. It's a world of difference. And he compares that difference with being told that honey is sweet and simply tasting honey for yourself. He explains that you could study all the attributes of honey. You could read countless descriptions about its taste and its sweetness. 
but until you've tasted it for yourself, until you've tasted honey for yourself, you really don't know what honey tastes like. It's still just an idea in your mind. And that truth is the same uh, when it comes to, to knowing God. We can know about God. We can read all about God. We can do things for God. But until you experience God, God's goodness, God's beauty, God's kindness, God's grace, firsthand, you don't really know those things about God. And of all the sensory metaphors that you could use, tasting is the most intimate. It is the only one that actually involves partaking in the food, tasting that the Lord is good. Seeing God, hearing God, even touching God does not carry the same image as what it means to taste God's goodness. It implies knowing God intimately in our inner lives that we would be able to know and talk about God's goodness firsthand. And it is, this happens in so many ways, but God give it, has given us just these means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer, practiced regularly, both privately and in fellowship with other Christians. This is the way that we often, bit by bit, experience the goodness and grace of God. And it's in knowing the all-surpassing goodness of God with such depth and such power that there's no other earthly pleasure that compares to it. And it's, that it's then that we begin to become deeply transformed. And so that let us long for Christ to know this all-surpassing goodness of God in a way that changes us, that transforms us, that gives us new life, that allows us to love one another deeply from a pure heart, from the heart of Christ himself, given to those who through faith have been born anew. There's nothing more compelling, more beautiful than a person who loves earnestly from a pure heart, who loves with the kindness, the tenderness, the goodness of Christ their Savior. I'm going to end with a slight twist from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's famous passage on love. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but have not love, I gain nothing. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Christ never fails. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the amazing love that we receive in Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would know and experience this love to the very depths of our heart in a way that brings healing and wholeness to every aspect of our lives so that we might live as salt and light in this world as we bear witness to the new life that you give to us in Christ. Father, help us to know your all-surpassing goodness, a goodness that no earthly pleasure can compare. Help us to know your goodness intimately and powerfully that we might long for nothing else than the joy and satisfaction that's found in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.